Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Let me read. Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achan, and Achan the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methon, Methon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from, the, um, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, to consider who you are and how you've worked among us through history, how it is that you made this promise when we fell into sin and that you have fulfilled the promise in your son, Jesus. You've carried that forward through, as you've made that promise through many, many different men and women throughout history. <coughs> Father, we see in that that you're a keeper of your promises, that your purposes for us cannot be thwarted. We pray, Father, that as we look at your word this morning, we would be mindful, ever mindful of the glorious truth that you are God who makes and keeps promises in your son, Jesus. That Jesus is our hope, the one to whom you look, the surety that all other promises you make will be true. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you rarely ever hear anyone preach a genealogy, right? In fact, most people, if you're honest, most of you probably skip the genealogies as you're reading through your Bible. You probably come to the genealogy and go, okay, there's a bunch of names, I see them now, where's the good stuff? You certainly don't get all excited, unless you're some kind of Bible nerd like I am. You generally don't get all excited when you hear 
that a genealogy is on deck for the sermon that week. You, and you may wonder to yourself, why would I choose at this time of year to preach a genealogy during a Christmas ser sermon, during this time? Well, it isn't just because I'm some Bible nerd who gets all hyped up about genealogy, though that's true. Right? I'm preaching this genealogy because of the lessons that we learn from it. The lessons that we learn from it that are a great encouragement to us during this time of year. And I don't have time to teach it all, so I'm just going to focus on three lessons we learn from it. There are more lessons than this, but I'm going to focus on three. Three lessons we learn from Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. And here's the first one. First lesson is this. God's gracious promises to us God's gracious promises to us have been kept and therefore will be kept. And what I want to do is I want to start by jumping back to the garden of the story. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there because you're familiar with it and you've heard about it the last four weeks. But I want to start back where Jason and Russell started with us. Jason began by telling us about a God who created us. And he created us to live in communion with him and with one another. And we fell into sin. The serpent came, Satan came, and lied to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve wanted to go the way of Satan. And so they fell in sin. And with them, so too did we. And as Jason pointed out, the fall had five different curses which were attached to it. Five curses which were attached to it. I'm not going to review all those. You can go back and listen to this sermon. And Russell then came the next week and spent time on the one promise that is in the midst of that curse. Because in the midst of these five curses, when man fell into sin, God gave one promise. And it was in Genesis 3.15. And the promise was made to the serpent and to us. And the promise was that I will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. And he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. It's what scholars call the proto-evangelion. The first gospel, or first evangel. It's the beginning of the gospel story. It's where the promise is made in the midst of the fall that God will come and he will crush the one. He will have victory over the one who has led us into sin and self-destruction. And he will do so, through, do so through, through a man, through the seed of a woman, through his own son who will die doing so. Jason then brought us, after Russell preached on that, he brought us to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and he talked about the call of Abraham. And the fact that when this man Abram, who was a man who was a pagan from Ur of the Chaldees, when he was called out, a man who was living in idolatry, when he was called out by God, he was promised that this son, who was to come from the seed of the woman, would come through his family line, would come through his seed. And Jason pointed out that there were five blessings that were given to Abraham, countering the five curses in the garden that were made when we fell into sin. And the covenant with Abraham can really be summed up in this way. I will bless a multitude of nations through you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So we know this Messiah is coming through Abraham and his offspring. We know this Messiah would bring us the great promise that I will be your God, and you will be my people. And it would bring an end to the serpent who opposed us. But Jason fast-forwarded us from there to David. 
If you remember his sermon, he brought us from Abraham and David and talked about David, the great king of Israel, of whom more script, there's more scripture about David than any other figure in the Old Testament. And David was a type of the king who was to come. He was a type of the king who was promised in Genesis 3.15, the king who would put Satan under his foot. And he showed us that David was the man to whom God made the promise, the covenant, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the, king, the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now this promise spoke initially of Solomon, the son of David. But David understood that it also pointed forward to a greater son of David. David understood that. It pointed forward to the son promised to Adam and Eve, the son promised to Abraham, and now the son promised to David. And this son of Abraham and son of David is the one who's to come. He's the son of God promised to us, and to whom the whole Old Testament points. And with that in mind, we look at Matthew 1, 1 again, and we feel the weight of the beginning of this book. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God's promises have been kept in Jesus' first coming. That's what Matthew starts off pointing to. Incidentally, there's a scholar named D.A. Carson, and many of you may or may not be aware of, has made the point that this word genealogy here, this book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is probably better translated the book of the story, or the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He said, well, there's a genealogy listed after that, and that's true, and that would be included, but he's saying this, this doesn't just serve the title for the genealogy, it serves as the title for the entire gospel of Matthew. A summary of the entire Gospel of Matthew. This is the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. They didn't go around calling him Mr. Christ. Christ is a messianic title. Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the one to whom all the Old Testament points, the son promised to David and the son promised to Abraham. This is the beginning of his story. And God's promise has been met, kept in Jesus, and thus he'll continue to keep his promises. And what are those promises that he'll continue to keep? He promises to save to the uttermost all those who are his. He promises to work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He promises to gather people from every tribe and tongue and nation into his people. He promises his son will return and bring an end to all sin and suffering and death and will establish his gloriously good reign forever. And he will keep these promises. Jesus is the surety of these promises. This is who we celebrate every Christmas. Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. The seed of the woman who crushed Satan under his feet, and who will one day crush him under our feet. So when life is falling apart around us, and when injustice abounds, and when we wonder where God is in the midst of terrible tragedy, and suffering, and depression, and loneliness, and job loss, 
and family disintegration, Christmas is a reminder that God has kept his promises. And he is the God who keeps promises. And he has not forgotten. He is not absent or uncaring. He hears our cries and he promises to put all things right and he will. It may not be on our timetable, but he will do it. And let me remind you, the Christmas, the Christmas story is not some whitewashed morality tale that doesn't speak to the kind of tragedy and evil that we see all around us, the kind of tragedy and evil that we saw this last week in Connecticut. The Christmas story is not some sappy, sentimental story that asks you to avoid the reality of pain that's occurring in the world. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, who's Herod? He's the, the man who's overseeing that area of the world and the Roman Empire at the time. A man who, incidentally, we have more information about Herod than any other first, or, well, just pre-first century A.D. figure. We have more on him than Caesar Augustus. Then Herod... When he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, because you remember the story, the wise men were these men from Babylon who had come, come west, and they'd come to do what? To see the Christ who was being born. And they told Herod that the king of the Jews has been born, and we want to see him. And Herod wants to kill the king of the Jews because Herod believes he's the king of the Jews, and who is this man who thinks he's going to compete with me? And so these men are going to see him, and they... He realizes he's been tricked by them. They're not going to tell him where this baby had been born. He became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. In other words, we know at this point in the story, Jesus is somewhere two years old or under. And in this Christmas story that we talk about every year, we seem to forget to mention that in the midst of this story, a mass homicide takes place of infant boys. He goes on, verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. See, the Christmas story knows the pain of the kind of evil we see around us. And it reminds us that while the work of evil abounds and brings great tragedy to our lives, on this day, a child is born who brings us the child who will finally and fully crush Satan under our feet. The child who will bring an end to this kind of suffering and sin and death. So while we look to the Father with great hope because he kept his promises in the Son, this doesn't mean we pretend that all is well now. This doesn't mean that we pretend that sorrow and lament do not exist now. Faith is not covering pain with some kind of empty sentimentality. Faith is offering remembering God and hoping in the certainty of his gracious promises in Christ in the midst of great pain. 
what faith is. And that's how the Christmas story speaks to this. God has kept his promises, and he's not unrealistic. He knows we're in pain, and he's kept his promises in bringing his son to relieve us of us, us of our pain. And his son will eventually come and keep the rest of those promises. We remember that each Christmas. Second point. Second thing we learn from the genealogy. God's gracious purposes for us cannot be thwarted by us. You hear that? God's gracious purposes for us cannot be thwarted by us. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And I'm going to stop there because I've read the entire genealogy already because those are the points I'm going to pick up on is in those verses. But here's, here's what I want you to understand about this genealogy. In this genealogy, Matthew gives us a compressed view of the history of the Old Testament. Essentially, this genealogy is a compressed picture of the Old Testament. It leaves out some names. And it's not uncommon to have gaps or genealogical gaps in the Jewish genealogies. It's not uncommon to leave out names. For example, what you see in this genealogy and the way Matthew compressed it is he's left out several names so that he has these three divisions of 14. 14, 14, and 14. 14 from Abraham to David the king. 14 from David the king to the exile. That's when they are kicked out of Israel as Nebuchadnezzar comes in with Babylon. And 14 generations from the exile to the Christ. And people ask, why does he arrange it that way? Is it for balance and symmetry as he says that the entire story, every epic of Jewish history, points forward to Jesus? I, I think that may be the case. Some scholars say that it might be because he's practicing a Jewish literary technique called gematria. You may not have heard of this or used this before. We generally don't, but let me give you an example of it. The number of his name shall be 666. You guys heard of that before? Why does it say the number of his name will be 666? Because in the Hebrew language, letters correspond to numbers. Letters correspond to numbers. And so the value of the consonant, the value of the consonants in your name, because there are no vowels in Hebrew, so you take each consonant, you add the value of those consonants, and it spells 666, it's telling you something about this guy's name in Revelation. Well here, the value of the consonants for the name David, who seems to be the center of this genealogy, the value of the consonants of his name are four, is 14. And so some say Matthew's practicing gematria, trying to drive home David as the centerpiece of this genealogy. I'm not sure if that's true or not. The point is, is that the point is, is that Matthew has intentionally reduced the number of people included here to make a historical point, to make a theological point. He's driving home something about Jesus, and that's that Jesus 
is the center of everything the Old Testament is talking about. That it all comes to him as the Davidic king. And what's striking in his compressed history is that Matthew includes some interesting and surprising details. So look first at verses 2 and 3, or really verse 3, look first there. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now that should stun you. It shouldn't stun you necessarily because a woman is in a genealogy, although the number of women who occur in this genealogy is a much larger percentage than it is usually in Jewish genealogies. It, it is true that women have appeared in genealogies before. This isn't the first time in Jewish genealogies. What should stun you is that Jesus comes from the line of Perez. Perez is the son of Judah and Tamar. Why should that stun you? Because who is Judah? Judah is Tamar's father-in-law. Tamar had not had a child by her husband. Her husband died. Tamar decided to dress up like a prostitute, and Judah, being the godly guy that he was, hired a prostitute named Tamar and got her pregnant. Now, he didn't know that he was getting his daughter-in-law pregnant, but he was. He didn't realize that this prostitute was, in fact, his daughter-in-law because she had covered her face. But Perez is in Jesus' line. See, Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the Promised One, is the descendant of this sinful and incestuous union. Notice that God works even through the sin of His people to bring a great blessing to them. You would think that this is one way to foul up the Messianic line, isn't it? So you could stop God's purposes. Because we have been told in the Old Testament that Jesus is coming not just through Abraham, but through specifically the tribe of Judah. And if Judah is the one through whom the Messiah is coming, then Judah could mess it up with his sin, right? He could cause an impure line to happen, one that's incestuous and sinful. But he doesn't. While he walks into that sin, God still works through it to bring great blessing. Second, look at verses 4 and 5. And Ram, the father of Minadab, and Minadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Interestingly enough, Rahab, a Gentile spy. But even more interesting, Boaz comes through Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. What's interesting is this genealogy, this little part here in verses um, 4 and 5 and 6, are picked up from the end of the book of Ruth. These are, this is a genealogy given at the end of the book of Ruth. And it's picked up. Why? Because Ruth is from a pagan nation. She was not a Jew. The reason that she came to Israel is because her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi's husband had committed great sin in leaving the land and encouraging their sons to intermarry with pagan women. And Naomi's sons die. And Naomi's husband dies. And Naomi has to return. And one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, goes with her. And her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is faithful. But Naomi 
is sinful. And it is through the sinful actions of Naomi, again and again and again in the book of Ruth, that God graciously brings about the union or the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. And what's remarkable is that Ruth then gives birth to the child through whom came Obed, the father of, or excuse me, gave birth to Obed, who through him came who? Jesse, the father of David, the king, through whom came Christ. See, it was Naomi's sin, her husband's sin, that God used to bring about great blessing. Third, look at verses 5 and 6. Notice the emphasis on how Solomon, look at this, and David, the end of verse 6, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now that's a smack to David right off, isn't it? Notice what Matthew says. He doesn't say he's the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. He says by the wife of Uriah. Pointing to what? That David murdered a man and committed adultery with his wife. See, Matthew's emphasizing David's sin here. David had killed a faithful man, Uriah, and taken his wife Bathsheba, and this horrific deed does not go unnoticed. Yet God continues to work through even the sin of these Old Testament figures to bring about the promise of the Messiah. See, what's surprising and important here is that Matthew takes the time in this compressed genealogy to point out the, the sin of many of those Old Testament figures through whom Jesus descended. Almost shouting at us, God's gracious purposes for us cannot be thwarted by us. The Father in His great love for His Son purposed from eternity past to give Him a bride, a people, a church. The Son in His great love for the Father purposed from eternity past to redeem his bride, his people, his church, and to present her pure and spotless before the Father. The Holy Spirit, his great love for the Father and the Son, purpose in eternity past to work in creation and redemption, to bring about the loving purposes of the Father and the Son. And we can't stop these purposes from coming to pass. See, God is a God who created out of the overflow of his love. And he's a God who redeems out of the overflow of his love. And he's a God who relentlessly pursues doing good to the objects of his love. And he has purpose to save his people. And we can't stop his gracious purposes, even with our sinful actions. Does this mean our sinful actions are inconsequential? No, no, they have great consequence. What it means is that God's gracious purposes are greater still. See, I want you to hear this, Christians. I want you to hear this. It means that when you reflect this Christmas on what this is all about, that you can sum up the message of Christmas by looking at the birth of Jesus and knowing that he had to come and he had to die on the cross because sin abounds. <laughs> but at the same time, you can look at the birth of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and pronounce, but where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Finally, I want to look at one last lesson we learned from this genealogy. God's gracious work, it's the third one, God's gracious work through us is not weakened by a relative historical obscurity. Do you hear that? 
God's gracious work through us is not weakened by our relative historical obscurity. Look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. I think it's easy to wonder what difference can I make in the world. You might wonder that. You might say something like this. I'm not going to be remembered in history. I'm an obscure person. I have no great gifts to speak of. I have no great family heritage. I have no great intellect. I'll likely do nothing remotely important. I will likely accomplish nothing of note. I won't win any awards. I probably won't save any lives. I won't give any great speeches. And all of my memorabilia that I hold so tightly to now will likely be tossed into the dustbin of history. And let me be completely honest with you. That's all likely true. Get a hold of that now. If you haven't, midlife crisis is coming. And I don't want to see you driving around in a little Corvette. Right? Okay. However, that does not mean that God's gracious work through you will be weakened. Hear that? Doesn't mean his gracious work through you will be weakened. Many of the names in this genealogy you likely don't know. The Bible says very little about many of the names in this genealogy. Further, God worked through some carpenter, Joseph, and his expectant teenage wife, who gave birth in a stable in some obscure town in a conquered nation, a birth that was witnessed by obscure shepherds. You know, shepherds are the low men on the social totem. And the Lord worked in this way to bring about the birth of the Savior of men and the Lord of glory. God delights to show his glory in what is weak. He delights to confound the wise through what seems to be foolish. Christmas is all about God showing his glory through great humiliation. Look at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And I want you to notice the irony of some of what Luke writes here. Verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So you understand, Caesar Augustus is one who anointed himself the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And this decree went out that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, you might have just seen the latest article from one, I think it was Newsweek or whoever, who questions this part of Luke 2 via um, Bart Ehrman. And the problem, of course, with his questioning of it is, is numerous. I won't get into it. This is probably textually the first registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And what's interesting here is how this, this story changes. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Luke uses Caesar Augustus as if he is a footnote in history. And he keys in on, Dave, on Joseph and Mary, these two people who you would not know apart from Jesus, at the center of the story here. See this insignificant teenage girl and her betrothed husband who are walking to some town in a conquered nation under the orders of Caesar Augustus, and he, Caesar Augustus, is the footnote, according to Luke. 
And he goes on, he says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, for there was no place for them in the inn. Likely they came to the family house. So you understand how family houses came. When you come for a census, all the family members would come to the house. They had to walk about 100 miles. They were probably a little late for the party, which means that the house is full. You have to go downstairs below the house. Below the house is where they kept the animals. It was like the stable. They put the house up above it and the stable down below, and that's where they stayed. And Jesus was born and laid in the horse trough. Even the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth are even there. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. These are the men, low men in the totem pole culturally. They weren't allowed to testify in court because they were considered dishonest inherently. But Luke wants to key us in on them. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. He didn't appear to Caesar Augustus or Quirinius or Herod. The angel of the Lord here appeared to shepherds. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That's the sign that you've found the Savior of the world and the Lord of all glory, is you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Now, catch this. The angels who saw God's glory in heaven for millennia prior to this, they saw God on his throne, exalted in all his holiness, so holy that it covered their own face. Those same angels, seeing this insignificant baby born in an insignificant town, in an insignificant and conquered nation, put in a horse trough, are testifying to angels, are to shepherds, and as those angels see this baby, at this point in history, they declare glory to God in the highest. In other words, in the angels' minds, of all they've seen of God so far, this moment was the pinnacle of God's glory, his humiliation, his insignificance. You see, so you may think that God can only work through the powerful or beautiful or intellectual, or wealthy, or well-spoken, or well-connected, or the honored and victorious. But the birth of Jesus and the cross of Jesus speak a better word. They tell us that God works in the obscure and the unknown and the weak and the insignificant. God works through this baby born in an insignificant city with insignificant parents and witnessed by insignificant shepherds, a baby who was descended through a number of insignificant and sinful people to change the course of human history. And you were never too obscure or too weak for God to work through you. In fact, God's power is made perfect in weakness and not in strength. You may wonder how God can use you. Perhaps you're not a believer and you recognize that your life has no real meaning. I mean, you may claim to be someone who believes in God, but you live day to day as if he doesn't exist. And you realize there's no real significance in your life, and you know deep down that your life is a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. 
You know your sin has separated you from God, and that's why he sent Jesus. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to bring you back to himself. No matter what sin you've committed, if you look to Jesus and his life and death and resurrection as your hope, you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven your sins. You'll be adopted as a child of God. Then your life will have real eternal significance. You may also be a believer out there who wonders what God could possibly do through you. What can he do through me? Do you know the life I live? I don't have any talents. I've been sinful. I've been wretchedly sinful. What can he do through me? God will use you in ways you're not aware of. You may not be a noteworthy person. You may not be noteworthy in the history of man. You may not be noteworthy in your own neighborhood. But God is using you to bring about his gracious purposes in others. That's why we engage in a mission as a church. Whether it's praying for and reaching out to our neighbors and co-workers and family members and friends. Or it's helping with the angel tree ministry for prison fellowship. Or it's helping with the flood for bringing food to those who are in need. Or it's helping with the rescue mission. Or it's helping with Radius International. Regardless of what it is, we engage in mission. We do this because God graciously, was graciously on a mission to save us. And we want to be used by him to see others saved as well. He will use you if you look to him in faith. He will. And if you step out trusting him to do so, there are people right now who don't know him and their lives are a mess like yours, but they have no hope. This holiday, so you know, roots up for a lot of people. It roots up for a lot of people everything that's wrong with their life. That's why you see a lot of suicide around this time of year. You can pray for them. You can tell them about Jesus. You can care for them. You can invite them to church. You may be the person who God uses to provide hope for someone who desperately needs him. You guys know who Charles Spurgeon is? I, I, I bet many of you have heard Charles Spurgeon. Heard his name. That means he's historically significant, right? He's been heard of. He's a 19th, he was a 19th century Baptist preacher who pastored a church of tens of thousands of people. His printed sermons were distributed in copies by the millions. Every week. He trained numerous pastors and planted dozens of churches. He's impacted many believers and pastors throughout the last two centuries. And by most, he's considered or talked about as the prince of preachers. Here's the question. Do you know how he was saved? Who's the guy who God used to lead him to Christ? Ever heard of him? You know Spurgeon doesn't even remember his name? Spurgeon doesn't even remember his name. Let me tell you Spurgeon's conversion story in his own words. Here's what he says. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair now. Had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. But a poor man, 
a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. He began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man that need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man not need be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. I, said he in his broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look unto me, look to me. When he had gone about that length and managed to spin out about ten minutes, he went to the length of his temple. Then he looked at me under the, under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. <laughs> However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. That's Charles Spurgeon's conversion story. Doesn't even remember the man or what he did for a living. Don't be afraid to let God use you. And don't underestimate the eternal, the eternal importance of your temporal insignificance. To do so would be to cease looking to Jesus and to forget the message of Christmas. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to remember what it is that your son Jesus has done for us. What it is that you sent him to do in saving us. That you kept your promises made to the Old Testament saints and that you will continue to keep them in Christ. May we remember that. May we remember that, that even our sin can't stop your gracious purposes for us. You will work all of them out. Jesus is the surety of that. And may we remember, Father, that you work, you've been pleased to work through the insignificant and humble and foolish. 
Father, that we would trust in your Son and we would walk forward knowing that you can use us, that we may be historically insignificant now, but Father, eternally, eternally, we are quite significant in your Son, Jesus, and the work that you were doing in the world to see many people saved, to many, see many sons come to glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.